kicking off the sesquicentennial episode of Ice Coffee on a new day on a different stretch of coast. Just looking out to see. It's funny, um, there's this hinge point in my history that divides my life into before and after I learnt to surf. And it's really distinct because before you would look out to sea and see waves. And now those same waves you look at and try and work out which way you would go and what manoeuvres you could make. And it doesn't matter where you are or how cold the water is. You just can't turn that off. And so even though I'm really eager to not spend time in these waters, my brain looks at the waves coming in and is calculating whether or not they could loft my 6.4 or would I need my mal and would I go left or right off that break. And it set me thinking that even though I've dived in water as cold as you can dive in, I think I've experienced the cold far more when surfing because the dives were limited by the air supply and the regulations of the program I was diving in. Surfing, you go out for as long as you can stand and sometimes you push yourself pretty far because you're waiting for that really, really good wave. So, in Victorian waters, surfing through the winters, you can get yourself pretty cold. And in Dunedin, surfing through the summers, you can get pretty cold. And surfing in winter is just... (sighs) Sleeping in Dunedin in your bed is an extremely cold experience. Um, just there's something about the the mentality of the people that settled the area that didn't want to pay for insulation and double glazing and underfloor heating I, I'm pretty sure Dunedin is the, the coldest place I've lived not just because of its latitude but because of the architecture so yeah, sleeping through winter nights in Dunedin was a far greater challenge than sleeping in the tents in Windless Bight. Some beautiful shapes coming through in the waves though, I'd go left on that one. Looking back into the Heard Island story, I'm going to quote Dick Thompson Lem Macy and I became the masters of pontoon technology these big inflatable pontoons proved to be a lifesaver for the Antarctic Division for a long long time we cut our teeth on Taunton because we didn't have the navy anymore before on the Labuan there were sailors to do things Taunton had a small crew and they would handle the cargo in the hold, we'd load it onto the pontoon, the ship's motorboat would tow us in. We had no more than four people on a pontoon, and then, when we got onto the beach, all our troops would unload it. End quote. Essentially a steel-held Wyatt Earp and stinking of seal oil, the Taunton wasn't comfortable, but its captain was competent and got the Inari where they needed to be, though it took 17 days. A big wave over the bow left that year's Heard Island sheep stock homeless when their pen disintegrated under the weight of water. Captain Friedrichsen removed them to one of the wing bridges for the balance of their journey, adding a lanolin and ungulate shit element to the seal oil and unwashed men cassoulet of the bridge. Grateful to the Norwegians for their enthusiastic assistance in the unload, Phil Law gave them permission to seal the local beaches. The crew quickly dispatched and flensed 20 elephant seals, convincing Law 
that Inari should supplement its government funding through commercial sealing. Richard Hoseason was an expert radio technician who might never have considered a slot in an Inari expedition, but for the fact that his fiancée broke off their engagement a month out from their wedding. He applied for and landed a radio operator slot and headed south with apparent good cheer, but his diary reveals a forlorn entity fixated on oblivion. Quote, what a horrible place to die, unquote, reads one of his opening remarks therein after arriving at Heard Island. Pin in that for later. One upside of Heard Island's difficult terrain and small size was it kept field excursions short. Where expeditions with the whole Antarctic continent to traipse about, ran on tightly regulated sledging rations and sometimes ran close to or straight into starvation, Heard Island field parties knew they could never extend their adventures more than a week away from the station. With dog saddle assistance, an away team could eat well through an entire fortnight. In April, trying to reach Saddle Cove, Carr and Brown, carrying 30 kilogram packs, took a shortcut along the narrow beach beneath the Budan Glacier ice cliffs rather than roping in and traversing the glacier itself. Quoting Carr, These glaciers have ice walls at the shore 150 feet or so high, and then a beach as wide as the average lounge room, 12 or 15 feet. So we thought we'd take a risk because it would be quicker. Quoting Brown, I felt uneasy, like a kind of foreboding. The sand strip was terribly narrow and forced us to walk directly under the vertical ice looming menacingly above. Back to car again. As though there was some malignant force guiding it all, a wave leapt up in the air and ran straight in. Now that water's very cold, and it just engulfed us. End quote. The water receded, leaving them cold and unhappy, but ashore. Been in that for right now. On the 26th of May, while walking a narrow shoreline below the cliffs at Corinthian Bay, after being told specifically not to attempt such folly by Brown, in company with radio operator Dick Hoseason and meteorologist John Atkinson, dog handler Alistair Forbes was nearly swept into the sea by a large wave. Quoting Atkinson, Hoseason and I grabbed hold of him and held on until the water receded. Then we threw away our packs and ice axes and ran for it, trying to reach the safety of the next moraine before any more rollers broke. But another one smashed clean over our heads. We held on to each other, but poor Hoseason was dragged away by the undertow. We were powerless to stop him. He shouted to us to save him, then I saw him disappear, and we didn't see him again. Forbes and I managed to hold on, then we dashed towards the moraine. Our clothes were soon frozen solid. I was terribly cold and frightened. We couldn't believe that Hoseason really bought it, and we expected him to show up at any moment. Everything was lost when we threw away our packs. Hoseason carried the emergency chocolate inside his windproofs. Atkinson and Forbes tried to reach the hut at Saddle Point, but the topographic challenges of Desperation Gully blocked their progress. Returning the way they came, they reached Little Beach once more, at which Atkinson collapsed from, exhaust, from exhaustion. Atkinson sheltered in place as best the available ground afforded, while Forbes headed off for the station, but he never arrived. Atkinson, frostbitten at the extremities and hypothermic at his core, staggered into the base the following day by following the coast, too weak to even contemplate climbing and crossing glaciers. His path home comprised a harrowing trek past the site of the initial disaster and involving many spans of wading and swimming to join the sea-level dots of his coastal progress. Quoting Brown, Tessia and Ingle were supporting Laurie Atkinson on a chair. He was almost unconscious, his hands puffed and white, utterly lifeless. His eyes were bloodshot and his bare, dishevelled head dripping wet like the rest of his body. Tessier was trying to pour some hot soup down his throat, and the scalding liquid burnt his lips, jarring him back into consciousness. He looked at us vaguely and said, I'm damned sorry. I'm damned sorry. 
Dick's drowned under the Little Challenger Glacier. Jock set off last night to cross the Bodison. Have you seen him? Then he lapsed into incoherency. End quote. A search party comprising Brown, Hall and Carr set out with three days' food and found Forbes' body a couple of hundred metres up a glacier he tried to cross. A route, I think, likely dictated by a high tide precluding his following the coast as Atkinson did. The drubbing and subsequent exertions out in the elements pushed Atkinson beyond human exposure limits, a rare example of death through hypothermia in the annals of Antarctic exploration. Lots of Antarcticans drowned, parched and accelerated to their demise, but I can only think of McIntosh and Hayward of Shackleton's Ross Sea Party and Captain Oates of Scott's Polar Party as cases in which the cold acted as the direct cause of their demise. Forbes' companions buried his remains near the huts. Quoting Brown once more, As we paid our last respects, the wind screamed through wireless masts, and two sledge dogs broke out into a mournful chorus, accentuating the scene of utter desolation. There could never have been a more fitting last post. End quote. Dick Hoseason's body wasn't recovered immediately, in spite of extensive searches along the known tidal strand points over the following week. Some remains showed up in the spring. A single cross near Forbes' grave commemorates their death. Alistair Forbes' death saw assistant cook Peter Brown take over canine upkeep. Finding the Nansen Patton sledges unequal to the strains imposed by the uneven ground and patchy snow cover of Heard Island, Brown fashioned a more robust Greenland sledge for dog training. As the summer came on and the snow became ever patchier near the spans, he swapped this out for a jeep trailer fitted with wheels mounted in rough terrain bogies. Brown's dogmobile served throughout the remaining years of Anari occupation at Heard Island. The winterers also fashioned dog saddles. Where the uneven coastal margins and scree slopes of the island tested sledge strength and the steep flanks and cliff margins of Big Ben made safe sledge travel painfully slow, a field party could take individual dogs loaded with 50 pounds of cargo out for an extended walk without much difficulty, increasing the party's stores quotient without taxing the tent accommodation arrangements as no husky would tolerate bedding down in the flapping indoor horror of a tent. A fire started in the base bath hut when the paraffin feed on a heater overflowed and spilt fuel on the floor. Luckily, someone noticed in time to apply extinguishers before the flames spread. Over the years of Anari occupation, Heard Island biologists made thorough studies of the terrestrial flora and fauna at Heard Island, including those seabirds and marine mammals using the island as a breeding site. Biology below low tide was another matter with most sampling of obligate aquatic species taking the form of fishing expeditions, with most samples going to the galley. A plankton sampling series started in 1951 in the Atlas Roads, but yielded only sporadic data, as the boat used to put the biologists on station regularly fell out of service due to the challenging circumstances of its operation. Given an engine failure during a round of plankton sampling would see the boat's occupants swamped and drowned, or headed to South America by the long route, or dashed against volcanic cliffs, word came down from head office to discontinue the scheme in 1952. Each of the final years of occupation at Heard Island, the winterers received a dozen live sheep. Where the local climate prevented long-term preservation of carcasses, Landing those carcasses in pre-carcass form kept them fresh until a hunting party went out and carcassified them. This scheme didn't provide much dietary variety in 1952, when the flock headed into the crevasse-riddled Bordesen Glacier and didn't return to the limited grazing opportunities afforded by the Nullarbor area near the hut. No great loss in my eyes, as mutton's pretty crap at the best of times, 
So I don't imagine the cuts available from animals living on meagre feed in severe cold and wet conditions amounted to anything better than was on offer in the army surplus tins of food, trademark, or on the penguin nests and in the seal wallows. That one I'd go right, even though it's my back foot. Link several nice sections together. I think there's a similar inability to switch off the imagination among skaters who look at topography and architecture as a series of connected spaces to roll and flip and grind through and geologists who look at the world with an eye for hitting it with a hammer and licking what's exposed you just cannot switch it off Heard Island, winter 1953. John Bechevet's as officer in charge, and some background is warranted given his influence runs second only to that of Philip Law in the shaping of Inari over the course of decades. Bechevet's grew up in the suburbs of Melbourne and began a career in banking, but chucked that to follow his interests in art and literature by becoming a teacher. In 1935, he became master-in-residence and art teacher at Geelong Grammar, one of the posher private schools in Australia, with current annual fees running at $50,000 Australian dollars for a day student and $84,000 Australian dollars for a boarder, which is a lot of coin to stump up to have your child abused by pedophiles and for successive cohorts of management to cover the problem up. Digression. Geelong Grammar came up for special condemnation by the 2017 Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, alongside just about every religious body operating in my nation and the Scout Association. The Timbertop campus of Geelong Grammar, described by one victim of sexual abuse under the school's aegis as similar to Lord of the Flies, is also described as the most enjoyable part of his education by His Majesty Charles III, by the grace of God of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and of his other realms and territories, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the Faith, who attended for six months in 1966, which goes to show experience can be relative. The then heir apparent to the British throne was the first such heir to attend school rather than receive private tutelage, and by all accounts, his experience of mucking in with children facing less royal futures kicked off a long cycle of brutal bullying for him. I'm not going into bat to defend monarchy or the homeopathy peddling chump stain the Australian Mint is preparing to foist on my wallet, but pointing out that one child's Lord of the Flies might be another's wind in the willows, depending on their experience to date. And none of that perspective assessment alters that Geelong Grammar offered open slate opportunities for pedophiles to victimise children in their care, and then covered up the abuse to protect the reputation of the school and of the Anglican church that spawned it, thereby allowing the abuse to continue. Ice coffee. Always willing to digress to shit-can institutional abuse and its covering up. Digression over. While at Geelong Grammar, John Bechevet's led a program of hiking and camping, similar to that of the Scout Association, though with one degree less transparency and accountability than that opaque and hand-wringingly ineffectual at dealing with pedophiles organisation, gradually building the outdoors skill set that made him a good match for Antarctic operations. He travelled to the UK in 1935, teaching art at St George's College and studying art history at the Courtauld Institute, founded in 1932 by Samuel Courtauld, cousin to August Courtauld, recounted as spending a month buried alive on the Greenland Dome in episode 86. Nothing special in coincidence, especially when addressing privileged wankers in the UK who, if not doubly closely related by consanguous parentage, all know each other from school days though it's interesting to join dots as they come to my attention. Bechevet joined the Fell and Rock Climbing Club in the Lake District, enhancing the skill set that later served him well in mountaineering and glacier travel in Antarctica. 
His wife Lorna and their daughter visited Australia in 1939, and the outbreak of war prevented their returning to the UK. John refused military service as a conscientious objector and continued at the Courtauld Institute until VE Day afforded him an opportunity to return to his home and family. He stayed on at Geelong Grammar until 1949, leading trips to Central Australia and to unsurveyed islands in Bass Strait. He made some first ascents in Tasmania and took up an editorial role at Walkabout, a publication promoting tourism and lifestyle opportunities in Australia to an international audience. While working that groove, Phil Law tapped him on the shoulder to lead the Heard Island Wintering Party, having recognised his leadership qualities and noted his experiences in the outdoors, in whatever interactions brought them together. Jim Brooks as geophysicist, Ken DL as radio supervisor, with Ron Parsons and Seth O'Brien as radio operator, Peter Shaw as meteorologist, with Lenny Welch, Bernie Isabel and Fred Elliott as med observers, Arthur Gwynne returning as medical officer and picking up biologist duties, Jack Hughes as diesel mechanic, the appropriately named Leon Jennings Fox looked after the dogs through the 1953 winter, and Dick McNair as cook. That year's sheep stock began grazing the sparse Nullarbor vegetation, but the party decided to keep the remaining animals penned nearer the station as midwinter approached necessitating hand-feeding, but guarding against them disappearing into the hinterland as per the 1952 population. Habotska, king of the Heard Island Huskies, broke off their span one night, broke into the sheep enclosure and killed the lot. Some party members suggested eating the dog, but you don't eat a good team leader until they fall in their traces and can't get up again, and even then, if there's a less likeable human close to hand, Bechevet's trained his team in crevasse travel, teaching them how to rope in, make the best use of crampons and ice axes, how to spot visible crevasses and how to test for invisible ones. The wintering party made two attempts to climb Big Ben. The first shot at First Summit celebrated the coronation of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II by the grace of God, Queen of this realm and her other realms and territories, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the Faith, on the 2nd of June. A blizzard prevented the party including all but the cook, one of the med observers and one of the radio operators, reaching much higher than the 1,000 metre mark, at which altitude the wind became too strong to allow further progress. The ten climbers dug a snow cave into the fern. They drank a toast to the newly crowned queen by candlelight in the stillness of their mountainside eerie, while a storm blew hard outside, DL recounting the reflected candlelight sparkling on the ice like thousands of tiny diamonds. Robbed of their goal, and with all the relevant coronations toasted to the full extent possible, thoughts turned to the coronation dinner Dick McNair had promised. The climbing party returned to the blizzard and glissaded down an icy expanse on their bums, covering a third of the vertical distance in short order, though at some expense to the seats of their ventile cloth trousers. McNair's feast, comprising pea soup, tinned lobster, roast lamb and tinned vegetables, followed by cherries with custard, and ended with speeches of loyalty to the Queen and to Australia, neither of which I've heard anyone make outside of neo-fascist circles in the past 40 years. Things change. People change. Hairstyles change. Interest rates fluctuate. Where was I? Dr Gwynne delightedly reported the arrival of a Ross seal on one of the beaches. With fewer than 50 scientific recordings of the species since its discovery by the crews of the Erebus and Terra, this constituted quite an addition to the life list. The second attempt at first summit, featuring Bechevet's, Elliot and Shaw, reached the 1,500 metre mark of the 2,700 metre peak before a sustained blizzard forced them to chuck the project. Neither height sounds like a lot, but at 2,700 metres, Big Ben stands taller than any mountain in Australia itself, and reaching 1,500 metres up its steep and glaciated flanks is higher than I like to go above sea level when there's even the slightest chance of ending up slotted in a crevasse. Or ever. Altitude's overrated in my eyes. 
yes, you can see further, but you're further from the sea. And the sea is where we keep most of the crustaceans and polychaetes and all of the elasmobranchs. This second summit attempt marks one of the few times Heard Island imposed strict rationing on a field party. Pinned in a camp by a blizzard for a week and a half, the team ran short of kerosene for the Primus stove. They headed back to station on half rations to preserve what little thawing energy the dwindling fuel stock promised. Hey folks, it's Matt here dropping in from the future to let you know that I got a few paragraphs mixed up in the script. So, what comes next relates to 1950. I'll drop back in and let you know when we return to Bethavay's time. In August, Gwyn, Keating, Wreck, McGarrigal, Walsh and Young made a sledge journey to examine the northern margin of the Abbotsford Glacier. They laid a depot at a point they thought might serve future parties trying to reach Long Beach or attempting to summit Big Ben. An October foray by Gwyn, Keating and Young reinforced the depot in preparation for a summit attempt. On October 24th, Gibney, Young and Wreck took the dinghy with a spare outboard motor, as was the style at the time, given what happened during the last trip there, to attempt a landing at Saddle Point. Heavy surf saw them chuck the attempt and motoring back to their launch point at Corinthian Bay. The following day, Gibney and Brewer attempted a land transit by traversing Corinthian Bay and the base of the cliffs beneath the Bordasurn Glacier. They chucked that attempt too. On the 26th, Gibney, Young, Wreck, McCarthy, Wayman and Keating took the dangerously overloaded dinghy from Corinthian Bay to Saddle Point. The boat motor's shear pin a locking mechanism that locks together a boat motor's drive shaft and the propeller it drives, broke as the boat negotiated dense pack ice near their destination. Shear pins are designed to break before an unwanted load causes damage to the gearbox and on up the mechanical chain, so they're a good thing to have in play from an engine service life perspective. They're a dog if you're motoring in treacherous waters and working to a lee shore, because when one goes ping, you suddenly have no propulsion or steering just an engine that over revs if you give it some throttle. The unburdened drive shaft spinning freely and fast while the propeller just sits there, perhaps turning slowly and passively if there's inequilibrium between the boats and the surrounding water's momentum. They rode the heavy dinghy ashore through the brash and landed the shore party in stores. McCarthy and Keating tried to return to Corinthian Bay but couldn't traverse the brash under oars with the swell working against them. The ice blew out to sea the following day, but heavy swell meant men and motors received a drumming as they attempted to launch. Boating was abandoned for the day to allow time to dry and restore both men and machinery to a serviceable state. On the 28th, the team drew the dinghy further up the beach as the swell built, and even then they nearly lost it to the sea when a particularly large wave swept the beach clean at the pinnacle of that morning's high tide. The waves eased in the afternoon. McCarthy, Keating and Wayman made a successful launch, but the remaining outboard motor conked out almost as soon as they left the beach. They took to the oars, but a strong southwesterly generated chop that soaked and dispirited them and prevented adequate progress. The soggy boat party rowed their soggy boat back to the beach at Saddle Point, where it promptly capsized in the surf. At this point, boat ops were sensibly abandoned for the foreseeable future. On the 29th, Young, Wayman and Keating attempted to traverse back to Atlas Cove, hoping to find an overland route and to retrieve the crampons, ropes, ice axes and such a person might find useful in attempting to find such a route, and some spare parts for the newly water-aspirated outboard motors that might make such an overland route moot. They picked a low route across the Challenger Glacier, well clear of the avalanche scree slopes further up, but riddled with seracs that might topple and kill them at any moment. As they later found out happened to a party of sealers attempting a traverse in that area in 1885, which I only found out about as I made these notes.
Serax or Ground Zero for avalanche debris makes a tough choice, which is part of the reason I remain at sea level as much as I can and carry a pocket load of boat motor spares and the basic tools necessary to apply them at short notice. Not going to head uphill for the sake of a shear pin. And the crustaceans and polychaetes and such. There's something swimming past. Not quite the scimitar fin. Pot of five. These binoculars are good, but binoculars are never as good as you want them to be in the moment. Photographs. Someone on the boat will be able to wow me with their taxonomic prowess. Guess what happened when they tried working past the cliffs beneath the Bodasan Glacier between Corinthian Bay and Little Beach? Go on, guess. Yes, that's right. A big wave nearly placed them in the same straits as killed Hoseason and Forbes the previous year because Heard Island is reliable in its implacable indifference to human life. They backtracked soggily and headed uphill, picking a path through the crevasses and icefalls the Bordesan features in extravagant abundance along the 300 metre contour. The trio reached the station by mid-afternoon. Better equipped for such uphill shenanigans, Young retraced the route with Brewer and Thornton, with Gwyn and a dog team providing logistical support, though unable to make the entire journey to Saddle Point. While making a return trek to Atlas Cove with Thornton and McCarthy on the 2nd of November, Brewer fell down a crevasse. The five metre freefall didn't pose as much of a challenge as the icy pinch that ended it. Unable to wriggle free and losing lung tidal volume with each attempt at same, Brewer received a rope sling arrangement to hold his weight and thereby prevent gravity crushing him any further, while Thornton finished the trek solo and returned with the rescue party an hour later. On the 3rd of November, Young, Gibney and Wreck departed Saddle Point for Spit Bay to complete an elephant seal survey. They camped at Fairchild Beach. At midnight, a 12-hour blizzard kicked off keeping them tent-bound until the afternoon. In the afternoon, the snow turned to rain and drenched the men and all their equipment and stores, the tent having developed rents in the earlier strong winds. Soaked, they gambled on reaching the hut at Spit Bay in one shot, leaving their ruined tent and newly useless skis behind and pushing on for six hours hard slog in the wet. Left-hand brake's completely closed out now. Sucks to be goofy for me. The Hut, a former aircraft engine crate, landed during the previous summer's relief ship visit, held the food, fuel and equipment to keep them fed for up to a month. But in this moment, they spent most of their praise on the genius who saw fit to cache a slop chest of dry clothes. Over the following five days, they made good on the seal census and worked to improve the weatherproofing of the hut. They attempted to return to Saddle Point on the 10th, 11th and 12th of November, but on each occasion the weather turned and saw the tentless trio hightail it back to the aero engine crate. Heavy snow kept them trapped in their box until the 15th, at which clear skies saw them make an all-out push for Saddle Point. That same day, taking advantage of a spring low tide, 
Wayman, Walsh and McGarrigal made an intertidal traverse from Atlas Cove to Saddle Point to deliver a replacement ore for the dinghy. The following day, all six men rode the dinghy, while four men rode the dinghy, in fine weather, reaching the original launch point after just two hours. On the 24th of November, the entire Heard Island party celebrated the centenary of American sailor John Heard's discovery of the remote southern Indian Ocean volcanic pimple aboard the Oriental. Okay, that's the last of the 1950 content and we're heading back into the narrative with John Bechevez and his team. John Bechevez kept a detailed diary during his 13 months on the island. His writing always kept an eye on future publication and he typed up the copy with carbon paper replication and lodged the resulting manuscripts at various libraries. Dr Bernadette Hintz author of the Antarctic Dictionary, edited the copy to excise some of the repetition long spans in such isolation necessarily feature, and published the resulting expurgated diary in 2011 as Unique and Unspoilt, a year among the natural wonders of Heard Island. Ken Diel published a children's book about his year at Heard Island in 1955. Penguin Road comprises the letters he wrote to his children while on station, covering various aspects of base life and local biology, and it remains an eminently readable addition to Antarctic literature, and one which recently came into my possession when Australian Antarctic Division veteran Jeff Wilson donated his Antarctic bookshelf to me as he prepares to move home. An interview with Jeff lies in the offing, and another with his Antarctic colleague Trevor Hamley, who's on track to publish Vodka in a Vegemite Glass in coming months. Having read The Galley Proof, I can barely contain my excitement about that one. Struggling to hold back on spoilers, I can tell you. And, in another coincidence, Trevor knows Robin Wilson from his days in the Monash University Dive Club. Dr Wilson supervised my honours research in my time at the then Museum of Victoria's Crustacea Lab, housed in an old shoe factory at Abbotsford, where I also met Dr Hintz while she was working on her Antarctic Dictionary. I'm starting to suspect we're in a simulation in which Robin is the player character, as he forms the nodes of association that make the Coulthard thing noted earlier seem entirely humdrum. If you have to be a non-player character in anyone's reality, Robin's is probably better than a lot of others you might find yourself in, because, as Kerry Hamley noted, Robin treads gently on the earth. And I just remembered that Jan Wilson's father, Bill, was part of the first Macquarie Island wintering party. See? The whole meta-framework is getting glitchy and Robin-centric. I visited with Robin and Jan recently, and Jan recounted an anecdote her mother told her in which her father Bill returned from his time at Macquarie Island, but that she couldn't pick him out from the row of extravagant beards lining the ship's rail as they came alongside in Hobart. A guy with a huge beard came onto the wharf and kissed her, and she assumed he was Bill, and went off to resume married life with the visual stranger. Jan also mentioned that Bill spent time as a Met Observer at Willis Island at the northern end of the Great Barrier Reef. At 16 degrees south, he faced the exact opposite conditions he experienced in the Southern Ocean, and it doesn't sound any less uncomfortable. Willis Island is only 500 metres long and 150 metres wide. The Bureau of Meteorology established an observation station there in 1921, with Ice Coffee alumnus John King Davis serving as its first leader. During Bill's time on station, shark fins showing in the surrounding waters precluded swimming to cool off, for what it's worth in the blood-warm waters of tropical Australia, and clothing, which would have rotted off in the humidity anyway, was deemed an unnecessary discomfort by all present. But back on narrative task. The newly chartered Kistadan arrived at the end of the 1953 deployment. In addition to swapping out wintering parties, it took aboard the three dog teams trained up and ready for their continental tasking, and I'll address their voyage and unloading in a future episode. Heard Island Wintering Party, 1954. Graham Budd as medical officer and officer in charge. Jack Walsh returned to his canine charges to find a field of 60 excellent sled dogs after the selective breeding program and likely making him the only person who ever has or ever will experience three Heard Island winters. 
and he also picked up Med Observer duties in company with Murray Henderson and Vic Cleland. John Gore as radio supervisor, with George Delahoy as radio operator. The appropriately named Lynn Gardner as diesel mechanic. And the appropriately named Danny Sweetson as cook. And Keith Lodwick as geophysicist. Philip Law was determined to have the Caterpillar D4 available for the Continental presence and arranged a swap-out with a smaller Ferguson tractor. Royal Australian Air Force pilot Doug Leckie narrowly avoided a squishing when a wave upset the Ferguson on its pontoon, the airman throwing himself out of harm's way and into the sea. The D4, a pain to get ashore in 1947, proved a pain to get afloat again. A key comprising boulders and drums of sand carried south for use in making concrete went into facilitating its shift from the shoreline to the pontoon. That winter, John Gore applied his expertise to make a trail radio weighing only 6 kilograms and able to keep a field party in touch with the station from anywhere on the island. A big step forward over the military surplus ANGRC-9s, generally referred to as Angry 9, backpack units, which were heavy, touchy to operate, and only provided low-power transmission. Field parties managed to keep regular radio skeds with this new model radio, albeit mostly in Morse code. With fewer staff than in previous years to split the constant rotor of radio and MetOBS work, and no biologists, the 1954 Heard Island presence didn't run as much scientific work or field excursions as past teams, and there's not much to help me map their experiences in the material I have to hand. The Inari presence at Heard Island came to an end in 1955. Phil Law, working hard to give Australia a continental Antarctic presence, cited the material and equipment at Heard Island as an ideal starter pack for a base further south. I'll address that push in more detail in another episode. But the upshot was scientific work ended on the island in October 1954. The wintering party turned to packing instruments and equipment and dismantling the huts. Numbering schemes painted onto hut components and sketches of how things fit together made the bump out a slow and exacting process. They even passed the nuts and bolts used in the huts through taps and dies to ensure their threads were clean as an aid to the next people due to handle them in conditions far colder than those experienced at Heard Island. Though anyone who spent time in the sub-Antarctic might dispute that coastal continental Antarctica constitutes a harsher climate on temperature alone. The MV Kistadan, more on which in future episodes, arrived in January 1955 and received the dismantled huts, the remaining dogs and all southbound instruments and equipment. The shore party remained at Heard Island to mothball the remaining huts. MO Dr Graham Budd put aside enough surgical equipment to perform surgery up to appendectomy complexity and left a note on its disposition in the recreation room, though by this time, the Admiralty Hut, built by the crew of the sealing ship Kilkaldi in 1929 and first used by the Banzari shore team, served as a more permanent surgery. Long-life food went into pest-proof storage. Windows were boarded, doors were sealed, chimney flues were closed. Instructions for maroons on how to access the huts and what they'd find inside were painted on a board and arranged to be noticeable but out of the weather. The Kistadan returned in March and carried the last Anari Heard Island wintering party north. The end. Or is it? Anari occupation at Heard Island was short, but the legacy of that occupation loomed large. Where other nations establishing themselves in Antarctica featured glaciers, using past tense there as a vague nod to future-proofing my prose, on which their personnel could hone their survival skills, or in some cases, on which their personnel spent their every spare moment climbing, skiing and hiking, or tramping, or trail walking, Australia barely features snow. 300 vertical metres of snow fell on Australia's highest mountains each winter, 
and if it didn't melt by midday, then rain and myriad desperate ski bunny wannabes turned it into compressed ice in short order. Snow gum trees ensured the tree line and the snow line intermingled to a significant extent, and skiing in Australia was more about navigating at speed through densely forested terrain on treacherously slippery concrete than it was about moguls and powder. Australians were less able to prepare for Antarctica than the expeditioners from glacial endowed nations in the Americas and Europe. Even British expeditioners knew what snow looked like before turning up in Antarctica. Not so much the Australian personnel sent south. Macquarie Island experiences similar climatological challenges, but never reaches higher than 300 metres, and so didn't offer equivalent glacial crossing incentives to its glacially distinct counterpart south of the Indian Ocean. With its topography dominated by the steep flanks of Big Bend, Heard Island forced Anari personnel to traverse difficult terrain, to learn glacier travel, sometimes first principles, and to pitch camps in horrendous conditions. The skills the Heard Island expedition has developed in the six years of Anari occupation formed the fieldcraft nucleus that informed subsequent expeditions and served as the seed of the field training program the Australian Antarctic Division inherited. There, you heard the Heard Island story. Take care and appreciate your coffee, and furthermore, I consider that Carthage must be destroyed and that Hadley Meacham shouldn't be leading in any context, let alone at high latitudes, and that everyone who remains silent about his abuses and their being covered up to protect corporate interests isn't experiencing imposter syndrome in the context of their leadership and social responsibilities. They're just imposters. Rounding out this episode is the entirety of Aunt J. Duvicott's Open Waters, reproduced with her enthusiastic permission. A full list of links to Aunt J. Duvicott's online presences will appear in the Ice Coffee WordPress. And I'll miss you most of all, Scarecrow. Little old soul, keep rocking the boat. Don't you listen to a word that they say. Cause it's an old goal And they would have you with her Cause misery loves company They would hang their moons inside your rooms Where they made the mistakes of their fathers But you are no fool And I'll wait for you I'll be waiting in open water. All in the name of safety Cause they have volunteered to be chained by few But from one pioneer to another It's not that we aren't scared But I'll meet you there Out in the open waters Carry your bow to the water Just talk and write you off as
Turns out they were hourglass dolphins. Swap your two blue for one orange if you want. 